0: The No Filter Podcast, produced by students at the New Zealand Broadcasting School.
1: 2020. Election year. On September 19, millions of Kiwis will head to
0: the polling booths to cast their votes and decide who is in charge of Aotearoa for the next three years. People our age, the 18 to 25-year-olds of New Zealand are notorious for not getting amongst the political system. Together we comment, tag, react and share moments like this.
2: Flushing! Okay, boomer. My fucking good idea.
0: Get some guts! But pay absolutely no attention to the bland, boring crap like this. Doesn't give my opponents much time to run up to a election, does it? I'm
1: Mitch Redman. And I'm Nick James. And we're here to chat politics. With no filter. filter. Walbrook has become a pretty well-known face in the New Zealand political scene. She's young, funny, interesting and relatable, qualities that many politicians seem to lack. At just 26 years of age, she's already reached heights such as coming third in the Auckland mayoralty race, starting a fashion business and contributing to potentially legalising cannabis after this year's election. Despite being a Greens MP, today we are talking to Chloe Swarbrick mostly about why it is important for young people to vote in this upcoming election. She first entered the political scene as a 21-year-old, making her the youngest member of Parliament in New Zealand since 1975. Chloe is a very vocal politician on issues relating to youth. In recent years, she has called out boomers inside and out of Parliament, been vocal in asking for drug testing at music festivals, and spoke up against university halls who were charging students during the Level 4 lockdown. So without further ado, here is Nick James' interview with Green Party List MP Chloe Swarbrick.
0: You grew up in Auckland and post high school you went to university, started a business and then you got into broadcasting. Could you talk to us a bit more about that time in your life?
2: (laughs) About, yeah, uh, my late teens, early 20s. It was a very interesting time in my life. I (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm technically a high school dropout. So um, I went to a high school that I wasn't a particularly big fan of the pedagogy of, uh, that being the usual kind of process of uh, being handed all this information, um, not really given the capacity or the opportunity or the time to investigate or interrogate it. Uh, I remember literally being kicked out of my chemistry class uh, for trying to discuss with my teacher uh, the fact that all science is falsifiable. <laughs> uh, and she didn't want to talk about that, which is obviously why I probably ended up going on to study philosophy at uni. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I didn't like the idea that intelligence or knowledge was the stuff that you know you got handed and then regurgitated it. I thought that it, kind of inquiry was really important. Uh, so I, I was also going through a really rough time in my life mental health wise um, and that's what kind of led me to move out of home, leave school uh, and to start at uni and I just completely changed everything. Uh, when I was at uni I met my then partner Alex, um, who I'm still really good mates with, it's really weird when I talk about this in my life yeah. now because um, he actually helped me move house the other day um, so Alex and I were together for six years and we ran a number of different businesses together but the first was uh a uh, meanswear clothing label Right, which we started up because uh, I was from Auckland and Alex was in Taranaki, uh, and he kind of moved to Auckland and we met at uni. And uh, he's six foot three, and you know we went out shopping for new clothes and couldn't really find anything that he was into. So, uh, for some reason or another, as you do when you're eighteen, 18, 19, I had saved up um, a few thousand dollars from working in retail, and we just decided that we would open a clothing label. And <laughs> um, we started off with t-shirts and then slowly. Started to produce a whole line out of um, this uh, manufacturer in Nelson, uh, and that kind of uh, snowballed into doing a bunch of other things. Uh, we later went on to running a little online uh, kind of blog, which turned into an online magazine, which then turned into like pop-ups and art shows and um, retail spaces and a whole bunch of things. We then uh, ran an artist management and a freelance marketing company, uh, and while all of this was back I worked at BFM um, for about four and a half years and yeah as you say I also uh, did a BA in philosophy and a law degree at the University of Auckland Um, and I just kind of I guess threw myself at a lot of different things because I didn't know who I was and know what I wanted to do and was interesting and exploring ideas and meeting new people and I think as well it's funny like particularly in the context that I'm in right now a lot of people kind of assume uh, that I'm some form of mega extrovert or something but um I I get so stressed and run out of energy so quickly uh, when it comes to just doing really surface level interactions. I love having deep yarns with mates of mine. I've got pretty much all the same friends from before politics. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, that time in my life was really important for, for learning a lot, but, you know, you never stop learning.
0: Definitely. And as a young person myself, the thought of running for Auckland Mayor at 21 years old seems incredibly daunting. Could you talk to us a bit more about that experience?
2: Yeah, for sure. So um, I uh, was at BFM, and um, it was the end of 2015, start of 2016. And uh, I was just frustrated with a bunch of things as you kind of are. And as anybody who watches the world around them often becomes, and I mean, you're interviewing a politician right now, but if you've interviewed any other politicians, you'll find that quite often it's difficult to get a straight up answer out of them. And that was the experience that I had. And uh, and I was interviewing the top candidates for the Auckland Meralty, you know, I'm an Aucklander, born and bred, yeah. uh, and was just really gutted by the fact that they didn't want to talk about a vision for the future of the city, because there's all of these tiny little problems, but amalgamated, they turn into a system, right. uh, and a system that is either by design or by neglect. And when you're in a leadership position, you have the opportunity to take the reins on those things. Uh, and I was just, yeah, consistently um, gutted by the fact that they either didn't want to engage in it or wanted to pivot, um, which is a political term, to talk about something else, which they could get a better soundbite out of. And I was just really pissed off. And I um, spoke to my producer at the time, Lillian, um, who went on to be news director at Bay. And she was like, oh, Chloe, if you're going to complain about it, just do something about it. So, um, yeah, I went on and I Googled, you know, how to become Auckland's mayor, mayor. Um, I waited until I turned 22 to um, enroll. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, because my birthday, my birthday's is the 26th of June. Uh, yeah. And uh, the enrollment, the final enrollment date was the 4th of July. Uh, so I put in the f- the enrollment on the last day possible but also made sure that I didn't say anything publicly about it until after I was 22 because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the 21 year old um and I never thought ever uh that we would come anywhere near close to uh you know winning necessarily in the electoral sense but I knew that we had to take it seriously because if we didn't stand for it and we didn't take it seriously then no one would take us seriously Mm. and also um you know we were recounting all of these random kind of experiences that I've had in small business and otherwise in community kind of organization and all of those things I was always told were impossible to do. So I've always, I guess, kind of been more motivated by people telling me that stuff can't be done. And, you know, politics is supposed to be the out of the possible. So if it can be done anywhere, it should be done in politics.
0: In this next segment, we take a look at the differences between the multi electorate and the general electorate. Here is... What the f-
1: The general role versus the multi role. What's the difference and what's the purpose? If you're of Māori descent and enrolling to vote for the first time, you will have to select whether you're listed on the general roll or the Māori role. When making this choice, you are deciding on the person you want to represent you and your community in Parliament. For example, if you live in Gisborne and choose the Māori roll, you'll vote in the Māori electorate of Ikaroa Rāwhiti. The candidate who wins the most votes in the Ikaroa Rafati electorate will be your local Member of Parliament. However, if you choose the general role, you will vote in the East Coast electorate. What's easy is the party vote. All voters have the exact same options to choose from. That's when you choose Labour or National, for instance. So why are there Moldy electorates? Well, the journey began way back in 1853, a time where Māori were not represented in Parliament. Māori were not even allowed to vote, unless they had been given special permission from the Crown. What an absolute joke. However, due to the New Zealand land wars in the 1860s, some Pākehā politicians believed that Māori needed to be integrated into the political mainstream, to ensure peace was kept between the two races. They also wanted to reward Māori, who fought alongside the Crown, and against their own people. This is why Māori electorates were introduced. Fast forward 100-ish years, in 1975, the government introduced the Māori electoral option. This gave Māori the option to be put on the general roll for the first time. Prior to that, all Māori were put on the Māori roll. To this day, every five years, Māori voters are given the opportunity to change role if they wish. The last time this happened was in 2018. The latest statistics show that approximately 247,000 Māori are on the Māori role and nearly 225,000 are on the other. This is a 52 to 48% split, so it's about half and half. Currently, there are seven Māori electorates, which equate to seven Māori seats in Parliament. The largest electorate in terms of land is Te Tonga, which covers the entire South Island, Rakura Stewart Island and the Chathams. In contrast, the general role has 16 electorates in the South Island alone. However, there is an ability for more Māori electorates to be introduced, or some to be taken away. The MMP voting system allows for both general and Māori electorates to change, depending on the population of people in the area. So put simply, if more people enrol on the mouldy roll, it can result in more mouldy electorates. Since 1993, for example, the amount of mouldy electorates has grown from four to seven. Currently, the Labour Party holds all the multi seats in Parliament. Any political party is able to put candidates forward for these seats. So despite sounding really confusing, it's actually not that difficult. There is no right or wrong answer, and it comes down to your choice on what role or what candidate best reflects you as a young voter. If you're already enrolled to vote, you won't be able to change the role you're on until 2023. So in the meantime, go and do some research on your local MPs, whether they're on the multi role or the general role. Kia ora.
0: So we'll move on to now um, the issues around young people and voting and some of the policies um, you support. Um, Why do you think that the voter demographic like base of young people is so much smaller than other demographics?
2: So I'll give you a really local example. Uh, In Auckland Central, um, we have a wild situation where voters, it's the youngest electorate in the country, Hmm. so uh, those between the age of 18 and 34 make up 52% of the electorate. But of those 52% of the electorate, the 18 to 24 year olds, only approximately 34% of them are enrolled to vote. Wow. Uh, that's not even those who ended up voting. This is also a stats from the last election. But when you break that down, 18 to 24 year uh, sorry, 18 to 34 year olds who are enrolled to vote make up 18.9% of the electorate when yeah. they have the capacity to make up 52%. So that is an indication of how much we cut ourselves off at the knees with our capacity to, to vote and therefore to change that. But with all of that said, um, I think it's really important to our premise that younger people aren't homogenous. There's this kind of bizarre expectation that all younger people think or sound or look or are interested in the same things, but that's just simply untrue. You, know, you look across university campuses and you see youth representation in all of the youthlings of the political parties. And that's important because that diversity of ideology exists amongst older people, amongst middle-aged people, and it definitely exists amongst younger people too. Um, I think that the reason that younger people don't necessarily engage uh, in politics in the same way or to the same level that middle-aged or older folks do is multifaceted. Uh, One of the reasons, arguably, that's often put forward uh, is that young people don't have the same form of stake uh, and protection, particularly if the status quo. So if you think about the life experience of somebody as you chronologically progress through your life, when you're younger, you're looking at the world going, what's my role in this? What do I believe in? Um, And trying to form relationships and learn things. And as you get older, you accumulate stuff, you put down roots, and you therefore have a sense of wanting to protect that stuff and the world that you know. Whereas when you're younger, you're more exploratory. Um, And again, this is broad brushstroke stuff. Uh, but that also kind of tracks quite well to what most most sociologists or people who study political science is, would say is why people become more conservative as they get older, which, by the way, has not ended up playing out in the past five to 10 years in the same way that it traditionally has. Um, But on top of that, I think uh, younger people, by and large, are not all too dissimilar from other disenfranchised kind of chunks of demographics, whether it is poorer people or, um, you know, immigrants or other kind of communities, which you can't, again, expect to be homogenous, but which aren't necessarily reached out to or don't see themselves reflected in politics. So, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy in this awful um, kind of downward spiral, which feeds off of itself where on the one side of things, you don't have representation, Hmm. uh, or you don't have manifestation of representation through decisions which ultimately benefit those groups. Uh, so there's a sense of disempowerment and disenfranchisement, which in turn results in less engagement, which in turn results in less accountability, and therefore less of the things which work for those communities. Right. So it's this self-fulfilling prophecy kind of dog-eat-dog situation, which results in worse outcomes continuously. Yeah. And ironically and perversely, the only way to solve that is to find a fuse breaker, and that fuse breaker has to be engaging in politics. And when mm-hmm. I say engaging in politics, people often think. I'm just talking about voting. Elections, you know, happen every three years and politics happens a whole lot between those three years. (laughs) So, I actually encourage people to get involved far beyond that. There are a lot of people who are also really disempowered by what they see as electoral politics, Mm. and that's fine. To be perfectly honest with you, if you have this, you know, great explanation for why you don't necessarily think that you should be engaging in electoral politics, do something about it, because hmm. if you are simply using that as an excuse to disengage and to throw stones, then actually unfortunately it's not a protest, it's literally just tapping out
0: sweet so obviously these major issues sort of happen over more than one election, but I'm sort of trying to single it down to this one. What do you think the major issues relevant to young people are heading into this election?
2: I think the major issue um For young people as well as probably all um, facets of the community across the country, Um, this election will be whether we rebuild or we reset. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly in Parliament, and I'm sat in Parliament right now, like we're here until 10 o'clock at night debating all manners of legislation. Uh, And that is... That you have consensus across the political aisle that there needs to be some form of engagement with people and resources that make up the economy, uh, and we have to figure out how we want to move forward as a country and you know, address things like inequality and the climate crises and all of those issues. Uh, fundamentally, for me, and the perspective that I come to this from, I think that you You know, COVID-19 has not created these issues, it's simply exacerbated them. And what that means is we have an opportunity because simultaneously to the exposure of these issues, people have seen the power of government to respond to those issues. All these things that we were told were politically impossible, like housing the homeless, flexible working uh, for solo parents or for people with disabilities, uh, raising the core benefits, all of those things happened essentially overnight. And that's meant that they have been exposed as a matter of political willpower as opposed to a matter of possibility, because they were always possible.
0: Sweet. So when people go out to vote this year, they won't only be voting for their MP and party vote, but they'll also be voting for euthanasia, um, whether it should be legal, and the bill that you famously campaigned for, the cannabis referendum. Could you talk to us about why there's a cannabis referendum this year?
2: Totally. Um, I could actually talk to you as well about the euthanasia referendum because I was part of the cross-party group on end-of-life choice, but I'll (laughs) leave that to the side. So the reason that we have both of those referendums actually is New Zealand first. Uh, So you know that uh, in the uh, end-of-life choice bill, essentially uh, there was... In order to get the support of a majority of parliamentarians we had to insert a clause which created a referendum prior to the bill coming into force so there had to be a positive majority vote and the same thing happened in the negotiations for us in confidence and supply to form this government many people ask me why do we just didn't uh, regulate or legalize and regulate our cannabis we would have loved to have just done that but the greens are eight out of 120 MPs in parliament and the numbers are such that we do need to work towards some form of consensus, at least amongst the majority of parliamentarians to progress legislation. So uh, I have been working on the cannabis legalisation and control bill and the associated referendum now for about two and a half years. And uh, that's pretty much as long as I've been in Parliament. Uh, And the whole premise of this legislation is to recognise, first and foremost, that prohibition hasn't had a dent in the amount of people who use a substance. But in fact, prohibition multiplies harm because it pushes people who have problems into the shadows. Everybody who's ever experienced or seen others who have experienced harm as a result of cannabis use have seen that under prohibition. Uh, and the other side of things is that you don't have access, or oh, sorry, you don't have the ability to intervene in problematic usage. So there's no duty of care on the supplier. It means younger people have open slather access, and you also have no control over potency. So the point of le- cannabis legalization and control is to say, hey, prohibition hasn't fixed this problem. We have the opportunity to impose a legal framework of control and regulation, which increases community well-being and decreases drug harm based on So that's what I've been campaigning for. But if you were to listen to any of the prohibitionist scaremongering, you would hear quite a different picture. Mm. The point which I haven't uh, mentioned, because not enough people actually, I think, realise the reality of the situation is criminalisation under prohibition. So criminalisation, we know, is disproportionately imposed on particularly brown communities in this country, and that's evident if you look at the prison population, 51% being Māori, when Māori make up 15% of the general population. Uh, 4,000 people per year are convicted in Aotearoa for low-level cannabis offences, but approximately half a million people per year are using cannabis, which goes to show that there are Way more people uh, who are using the substance than have interactions with the criminal justice system. So I hear from a lot of people who go, yeah, but those 4000 convictions don't necessarily result in people going to prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. Sure, fine, but the reality of the conviction is that it impedes your ability to travel, to take up employment, and to get an education further down the track. It stays on your permanent record. And on top of that, why are we comfortable with an imposition of something that is not the rule of law? It is not applied equally amongst all demographics. And the greatest irony is that we have a situation where the majority of parliamentarians are on record for having used cannabis in the past, but now preside over rules which criminalise people for doing exactly the same thing that they did. And basically we have an opportunity to do things better. So that's what the uh, Vote for the Yes campaign will do.
0: Now I'd sort of love to ask you some questions that I feel a lot of people our age would be interested in but don't quite get the same media coverage. Um, You famously said OK Boomer to now National Party leader Todd Muller taking people in New Zealand, the world, and James Shaw sitting next to you uh, by surprise. When you said that comment, uh, did you know it was going to blow up or was it more a slip of the tongue?
2: Oh, been. I'd been talking to my little brother uh, that weekend, who's 13, I'm now 26, so I'm really old to him, uh, and he was explaining TikTok to me, and I then went and researched TikTok and found out that there were all of these, like, Zoomers talking about politics and doing things in a really cool way, and that's when I actually first came across the saying. Uh, and I guess it was just in my head, I was talking uh, in the chamber about the zero carbon bill, that was the week that we passed it, and I... Uh, Yeah, Todd was heckling me about my age. So I just, you know, popped back and it's wild how it's (laughs) followed me um, this whole time. I mean, simultaneously, you know, most politicians would say any cut through or any coverage is good coverage. But as far as I'm concerned, I'd far more like to be talking about the issues. But nonetheless, um, yeah.
0: What were your first thoughts when you were called Hopelessly Woke and Out of Touch by Mike Hoskins uh, in references to your beliefs about drug testing at festivals?
2: Um, well, there's only one of us who wears bejeweled jeans uh, that cost like $1,000. So, um, I mean, the, the woke thing is funny. We obviously also had old mate, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, talking about the woke brigade the other day. And I assume that means all people who have um, decided to educate themselves about the uh, reality of racism. Um uh, <laughs> I think uh, it kind of speaks for itself. Uh, I think that I was called that by Mike in the context of an interview uh, which I had hoped would be respectful around cannabis legalisation and control uh, at which point in time he told me that I knew nothing because I wasn't 50 years old and didn't have kids Uh, and it turns out evidence doesn't mean anything uh, when you have that much bias so yeah, yeah, I mean, go him whatever. Um, We continue to work with people who have open minds and are willing to engage with
0: awesome um just my last question uh on june 17th you tweeted that parliament tv is the best channel on television uh do you still stick by this tweet
2: <laughs> I don't have a TV. So um, I, I, I can't even remember what I was tweeting, but it would, it would have been in reference to something funny happening on Parliament. Like, you know how there's that classic adage? I say classic, but it's like a very common refrain um, colloquially now on Twitter that Twitter is the best website, can't believe it's free. Uh, it was the equivalent of that, that Parliament is cooked. And if you ever watch uh, live Parliament TV uh, and you tune in at like 8.30 at night like it is now, you will see parliamentarians doing the theatre of politics, which is so disconnected from reality because it is the ivory tower. Uh, But that's kind of probably what I was talking about. I don't remember.
0: (laughs) And that was Green Party List MP Chloe Swarbrick. Next up on the No Filter podcast, Mitch has a chat with News Talk ZB political reporter Aaron Darman, who wraps up last week's political news. The Week That Was...
1: MP Hamish Walker and former National Party President Michelle Bogue have both resigned from the National Party after sharing confidential details about COVID-19 patients. Another National MP, Michael Woodhouse, announced he also received similar emails from Michelle Bogue. What is to make of the situation and how do you think Todd Muller is feeling after the last few days?
3: Look, I tell you what, I don't even know how to make sense of the situation. It's been a week since down here at Parliament and particularly for the National Party. Uh, what you will have missed is that actually National this week uh, announced a $1.5 billion road from Ashburton to Christchurch, a four-lane expressway, and on Thursday it rolled out its five-point economic recovery plan. It's it's a roadmap, if you like, for that post-COVID recovery, but no one's talking about that. Everyone's talking about these leaks. So, h- h- how did this unfold? Well, At the end of last week, we had the first inklings that there was this leak of private COVID-19 patient details. That then spilled out to Monday, when Walker, at midday, Hamish Walker, the national MP, told Leader Todd Muller, I am the leak. Over the weekend, Todd Muller and Michael Woodhouse, the national health spokesperson, uh, they both went on a rampage against the government, Basically saying, how can this leak be possible? Where is this leak come from? Well, turns out that information came from former National Party president, Michelle Bo. But that day on Monday, they didn't act quick enough, really, because by 4 o'clock, the government had launched this high-powered investigation. And, uh, and basically, they said, look, we're going to find out who is accountable. Just over 24 hours later, we knew who was accountable, because Hamish Walker put out a statement and an apology saying, with was me. Uh, Todd Muller basically said yep he's talked to me and I urged him to admit it publicly and then 10 minutes after Walker put out his statement uh, we had a statement from Michelle Bogue saying well yes the information came from me in my role at the Auckland uh, Rescue Helicopter Trust. So that all unfolded very very quickly and of course questions were circling over what happens to Hamish Walker, Wednesday morning, the morning media round that Todd Muller did, he was pretty darn clear, Mitch. He said, I do not have confidence in Hamish Walker. But Walker got in early and he said, look, I'm resigning, I'm not going to stand in Southland uh, at this year's election on September 19th. That board still meets because they're, of course, now scrambling for a candidate in Southland. And, of course, we've also... Uh, now being told that Michael Woodhouse was also sent details and unsolicited emails from Michelle Bogue with different patient details. Uh, So it's all coming from, well, a multitude of sources all over the show.
1: Absolutely, and it's definitely a week that they're going to want to forget. They'll just want to get back into things and uh, you know, getting those policies announced ahead of this year's election. But the government, they haven't been excused from the drama this week either. A man who tested positive for COVID-19 escaped quarantine and went for a bit of a wander around a countdown supermarket. How do you think the Prime Minister and her team handled this breach?
3: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that was on Wednesday, uh, the day that Hamish Walker resigned, and you just had to think, one o'clock, it was literally an hour after Walker had put out a statement to say, I've resigned. And you'd have to think one o'clock, the National Party are sitting there going, oh, thank you, there is something to just, just take the shine, take that spotlight off us. But very quickly, the story unraveled. And suddenly we had this narrative that a man in his 30s had escaped a smoking area, Auckland Stamford Plaza, gone on a nighttime jaunt, strolled down to Countdown, bought some beauty products. We understand uh, it was shampoo and the like. Uh, and then took a roundabout way back home you have just got to wonder how is that even possible a that that happens but b that that person thinks it's appropriate that yep i'll just pop out to, to buy some beauty products and then and then roll back in he wasn't positive or he hadn't tested positive at the time it was tuesday night but by wednesday morning there was a positive test now The issue is, is that there were a number of discrepancies around the timeline. So for example, we were told initially 9.30, the countdown on Victoria Street West in Auckland closed. However, it soon came to light, I was sent a a receipt that said, no, look, I went to that countdown and bought something and and completed a transaction at 9.59 that night. The countdown normally closes at 10. That countdown did not close early. That's now been clarified by the countdown. Turns out police turned up at 9.30 to review the CCTV footage. The countdown closed at 10, and then they did a deep clean uh, after that. So that rolled into the Wednesday morning. There were a number of other issues. The countdown accidentally opened for a couple of minutes that morning on Wednesday too. You you might have seen uh, Paddy Gower, the News Hub reporter. He was one of those that went in in that very short period of time where the the countdown was open uh, by accident. So a number of things that are just just not the clear-cut, definitive border controls that we want to have. And well, uh, the government's acting. I mean, police now at all uh, at all the uh, managed isolation and quarantine facilities, 24/7, uh, they, the government, are cracking down.
1: Absolutely, and I feel like it's going to turn into quite an expensive uh, grocery shop for this man. I hope he only bought budget brand or value, because look, if he's going for Nivea Man or Garnier, look, it's going to, it's going to add to that that court fee a wee bit more I think but um, obviously police it it, it,
3: it, will, it will definitely ramp up and, and in terms of the maximum uh, uh, penalties he could face a $4,000 fine or he could be grooming in prison for 6 months
1: Absolutely, and just moving away from the circus that's been the National and Labour Party, the Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters has unfortunately had to take a bit of sick leave uh, for an emergency surgery, do you think that this will have any effect on voters, um, a veteran politician like Winston Peters becoming unwell just a couple of months out
3: from an election? Well he's a wily politician as Winston Peters and he never goes down without a fight, but yes. Uh, You're right. This week, uh, very out of the blue, we were told of a keyhole surgery that all went successfully um, because he'd been uh, suffering symptom food poisoning symptoms and dehydration. And and, and so, yeah, he went into surgery. It all went well. It has meant uh, that the New Zealand First campaign launch has been delayed by a week. But Peters has made it very clear, and he is a, a politician for the decade. He's been here. For as long as one can remember, and he will not go down without a fight. And he did say, in a statement, that he will be fighting fit for a grueling election campaign. So, look, the New Zealand voters, voters will vote for Winston Peters. They will vote for New Zealand First as they always do. And and I think ultimately he'll be he'll be rearing to go. He'll be back on the campaign trail before we know it. And, and this will just be uh, uh, a wisp in the, in the air, a memory, a, a memory once we get to September
1: 19th. And that's us for this week. Thanks to Greens MP Chloe Swarbrick and News Talk ZB political reporter Aaron Darman for joining us. Be sure to stay with us in the lead-up to September's general election. We'll see you next week right here on the No Filter podcast.